As far back as I can remember, I always wanted to be a gangster. Welcome to the Immortal Souls Podcast, where we explore the history, stories, myths, legends, and hype that make shoes what they are today. We are Jared and Nick, two brothers with a passion for shoes. We are excited to have you along for the journey. I came to Chicago with $40 in my pocket. My son is now 12. I'm still married and I love my wife dearly. We had to make a living. I was younger than I am now and thought I needed more. I didn't believe in prohibiting people from getting the things they wanted. On January 17, 1899, during one of the coldest winters on record in New York City, little Alphonse was born in Brooklyn to Italian immigrants Gabriel, a barber, and Teresa, a seamstress. Alphonse was one of eight siblings, and the family worked hard to make ends meet. Although by all accounts he was a very bright child with a lot of potential, Al grew up struggling to find his place. It became very clear early on that he had a general disdain for rules or restrictions placed on him. In fact, by the time Al was 14 years old, he was fed up with the parochial Catholic school that he attended and got expelled after punching a female teacher in the face. Throughout his teenage years, Al lived a life of petty crime robbing and stealing his way through the city with the likes of local gangs such as the Bowery Boys, the Junior 40 Thieves, and the Brooklyn Rippers, and finally, the more powerful and influential Manhattan Five Points Gang. During this time, Al became a bouncer for saloons, brothels, and other criminal organizations, where he started making connections with powerful gangsters and racketeers. While working the door at a saloon one night, he insulted a female patron, whose brother then slashed Al across the left cheek three times with a knife, leaving permanent scars. It was after this incident that Alphonse Gabriel Capone, or Al Capone, was given the name Scarface. Al Scarface Capone moved to Chicago in his early 20s, where he met and was mentored by the crime boss Johnny Torrio, who ran various illegal enterprises dealing in gambling, prostitution, and alcohol smuggling. This was during the Prohibition era, after all. Starting as a bouncer at one of Torrio's brothels, Al worked his way up the chain until he eventually managed one of Torrio's nightclubs, the Four Deuces. By 1924, Al had gained Torrio's favor and became his right-hand man and confidant, eventually serving as his personal bodyguard and consigliere, and eventually helping Torrio run his criminal establishments outright. Al was believed to be earning $100,000 a week by this point, and the future was bright for the young gangster. In January 1925, while returning home from a shopping trip, Torrio was ambushed and shot several times by a hitman. Miraculously, he survived. But this shook him up enough 
that he decided it was time to hang up the fedora and retire. Torrio handed the keys to the kingdom over to Al, who by this point had a reputation as a ruthless and cunning gangster. At just 26 years old, Al Capone was head of the largest crime syndicate in Chicago. Over the next several years, Al Capone solidified his power by ruthlessly eliminating or nullifying rival gangs considered a threat, leaving hundreds murdered in the process. He became the undisputed kingpin of Chicago, a national celebrity and the stuff of gangster legend. He garnered public favor by acting the part of a modern-day Robin Hood, even going so far as setting up soup kitchens and homeless shelters and donating large sums of money to local charities. Through equal parts charm, bribery, and intimidation, he climbed to the top echelons of society with cops in his pocket and politicians at his beck and call. A public darling, Capone was for a time untouchable, even befriending the mayor of Chicago and receiving standing ovations at baseball games while he brazenly murdered, threatened, and extorted his way to the top of the criminal world, racking up tens of millions of dollars a year from his bootlegging operation and other criminal enterprises. The feds were on to Capone, though, especially after the infamous Valentine's Day Massacre of 1929, where Capone's men, posing as police, gunned down seven men from a rival bootlegging gang, by 1930, he was at the top of the FBI's most wanted list and was even declared public enemy number one by the city of Chicago for tax evasion charges and the St. Valentine's Day incident. For all of the murder and mayhem, though, when Capone was finally sent to prison in 1931, he was sentenced to a mere 11 years for tax evasion and handed a fine of $80,000, a slap on the wrist, all things considered. Three years into his incarceration, in August of 1934, Capone was transferred from Atlanta to the legendary Alcatraz prison off the coast of San Francisco, where he would serve out another four and a half years. But after all was said and done, he was released early due to poor health, and he died a very slow and anticlimactic death after several years of dealing with a variety of health complications. Capone died in 1947, at his mansion in Palm Island, Florida, shortly after suffering a stroke. In the modern popular imagination, Al Capone is a myth, a legend, the stuff of inspiration for movies such as Scarface, Goodfellas, and The Godfather. Despite Capone's extraordinary and infamous life, though, it seems that most people, when they hear the name Al Capone, don't think of or even know about his actual life story or deeds that he did. Capone's biography, or people's knowledge of it, continues to fade with the passage of time. Rather, Al Capone, in modern thought, is a persona, a larger-than-life stereotype of old-style gangsters and mob bosses, a figure that dons fedoras, large cigars, diamond pinky rings, and expensive pinstripe tailored black suits. And of course the black-and-white wingtip shoes. The good old black-and-white wingtip spectator shoes. A shoe made so iconic by Al Capone and other gangster contemporaries at the time that one look at them 
And most people probably think old school gangster shoes or perhaps, to a lesser extent, ska band or punk rocker style footwear. Thanks to Capone, this style of shoe, known as the two-toned spectator shoe, will probably always have the mobster stigma, or at least visual association, attached to them. How is it that certain shoes are adopted by and associated with various criminal groups? Is it something about the style of the shoe? Perhaps the colors or the logo? The shape? Maybe the price? Maybe a combination of things? Whatever the case, shoes and criminal enterprises have an interesting intertwined history. Let's look back at the spectator shoe again. The spectator shoe is a style of low-heeled, Oxford, semi-brogue or full-brogue style of shoe with two contrasting colors, typically having the toe and heel cap and sometimes the lace panels in a darker color than the main body of the shoe. This style of shoe dates from the 19th century but reached the height of popularity during the 1920s and 1930s, which was Capone's heyday and during the height of his criminal power. The most popular colors of these shoes were white with a contrast in black, brown, or tan toe and heel cap. The spectator style is thought to have been invented by John Lobb, an English bootmaker, in 1868 as a cricket shoe. By the time Capone entered the scene in the mid-1920s, the spectator was, interestingly enough, considered tasteless and too flamboyant by British fashion standards, as the contrasting colors made them extremely flashy almost boastful in a way, for a society that valued subtlety and understatement in fashion. But across the pond in the U.S., spectators were wildly popular, a symbol of the Roaring Twenties and preferred by jazz musicians and gangsters alike. An interesting side note, it is thought that the black and white spectator shoes especially had an ideological significance in the jazz movement, as the 20s was a time that jazz, firmly rooted in African-American traditions, was gaining wide appeal with white audiences. Soon, Hollywood followed in the spectator shoe trend, and you could see the likes of Louis Armstrong, Fred Astaire, and even President Truman wearing spectator shoes. Even the Duke of Windsor was spotted wearing these shoes, and of course, Al Capone. Capone was known for his expensive tastes and penchant for high fashion, he wanted to be seen not as a two-bit street thug, but as a sophisticated and powerful gentleman. To project this persona, he wore the very best, the most expensive custom-made suits, costly cigars and jewelry, and of course, the most fashionable shoes at the time, which happened to be the Spectator and Oxford-style shoes. Other styles of shoes were popular at the time, but given what we know about Capone and his personality— it is no wonder that he often wore spectators. They were loud, flashy, and they just exuded confidence. All the traits that Capone embodied, all traits any good mob boss would have. Capone was the quintessential mob boss, and his shoes personified that image. It's as if they were an extension of the man himself. Fast forward to 1972. Bill Bowerman and Phil Knight, co-founders of a fledgling new shoe company called Nike, introduced the Nike Cortez to the world. Named after the infamous Spanish conquistador who defeated the Aztecs, this simple track shoe would become Nike's longest standing shoe to date and a symbol of West Coast style. The Cortez is probably Nike's most iconic shoe. 
with real and fictional characters alike sporting the shoe. Everyone from N.W.A. and Elton John to Forrest Gump and George Costanza. I proclaim this the summer of George! The Cortez's history is not all roses and sunshine, though. As anyone who has lived through the 80s and 90s gang culture can attest to, the Nike Cortez has long-standing gang ties. For decades, Mexican street gangs in California and elsewhere adopted the Cortez as a part of their gang uniform, perhaps as an homage to the figure for which they are named, Cortez, who defeated the Aztecs back in the 16th century. Especially the white and black colorways were preferred, along with other black and white apparel, often from sport teams such as the Los Angeles Raiders or the Los Angeles Kings, which matched gang colors. Growing up in Southern California in the 90s, I remember well the typical gang outfit worn by kids from elementary school to high school. It was always the black or white Nike Cortezes, along with knee-high socks, baggy khaki shorts, and a plain white t-shirt or a Raiders football jersey. More recently, the gang MS-13, or Mara Salvatrucha, a multinational gang originating from El Salvador, but with a particularly strong presence in the U.S., has adopted the Nike Cortez as an official part of its gang apparel, and for those pledging allegiance to the gang. It's gotten to the point that police often assume membership with the gang if someone in particular gang areas are wearing these shoes. In 2017, a couple of men were actually shot to death in Maryland by rival gang members because one of them was wearing Cortezes and thus thought to be affiliated with MS-13. Iconic and beloved as it is with non-gang-affiliated folks, the Nike Cortez is still easily considered to be the most gangster sneaker in the world thanks to its intimate ties with California, the West Coast, and the likes of the many street gangs that have adopted it as their own over the decades. Pop quiz. What do Calvin Klein and British night sneakers have to do with each other? Two words. Crips. I keep a blue flag hanging out my backside, but only on the left side. Yeah, that's the crip side. And bloods. If you blood, throw it up. 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 Most people are familiar with the decades-old rivalry between the Crips and the Bloods, two famous African-American street gangs, both founded in the 1960s in Los Angeles, California. Like most gangs, the Crips and Bloods have their own dress code, you could even say uniforms, to identify each other and members of the rival gang. There's the obvious identifiers, Crips associating with the color blue and Bloods with the color red. But these gangs have also used even more subtle, understated forms of dress not associated with color to both signify the gang they pledge allegiance to, as well as a way to insult or even threaten the rival gang. When the Calvin Klein brand exploded in the early to mid-1990s, the Bloods took notice and adopted it as their own. Calvin Klein's famous initials, CK, found on much of its merchandise, including conspicuously showing on many models of its sneakers, when worn by a blood gang member, stood for Crip Killer. On the other hand, in a similar fashion, the Crips caught on to the shoe brand British Knights after it exploded in the spotlight, being endorsed by the likes of MC Hammer and Cool Modi. During the shoe's heyday in the 90s, many a Crip could be seen sporting the BK shoes, with the intended meaning of the initials BK, of course, being an acronym for Blood Killer. 
This deliberate usage of the shoe by gang members and wannabes got so out of hand that schools in Los Angeles during the early 90s actually banned students from wearing British Knights to school. Crips and Bloods have appropriated other brands of clothes and sneakers to their use, often with dark and even sinister meanings. Crips, for example, have taken a liking to the Ralph Lauren line, Chaps, with the initials standing for Crips Hate All Piru Slobs. Piru referring to the name of one of the original Bloods gangs based out of Compton, California. In the early 2000s, Crips were also seen to often be wearing Adidas Superstar sneakers, as Adidas, when spelled out, could also stand for All Day I Disrespect All Slobs. Slobs being a derogatory nickname for Bloods gang members. In the early 90s, the Bloods often took to wearing Reebok shoes, as the name could also be an acronym for Respect Each and Every Blood, okay? During this time, the Crips also wore sneaker brands such as K-Swiss, which stood for Kill Slobs When I See Slobs, as well as Converse All-Stars, with the word All-Star spelled out to mean All Slobs Turn and Run. And Bloods on occasion would wear Echo brand shoes with the CK in the middle of the name, standing for, of course, Crip Killer. To help lower the temperature and ease tensions between the deadly rivals, shoe companies have attempted to release sneakers with a neutral appeal. For example, in 2015, Reebok teamed up with rapper Kendrick Lamar to release a sneaker with both red and blue elements. This model of Reebok ventilator came in an off-white color with the words and colors red on one heel tab and blue on the other heel tab, and the word neutral printed on the inside of the tongues. Not sure how much this actually helped the overall situation, but at least on a visual level, it was a step towards the right direction, promoting reconciliation and unity between the rival gangs. Even in prison, shoes can take on significance with various prisoners and prison gangs. Due to the rampant gang affiliation with certain sneakers like the Nike Cortezes, Reeboks, and British Knights during the 90s, prisons sought to control and eliminate such gang identifiers to better keep the peace. One way to do this was to ban prisoners from wearing their own sneakers in prison. Leading the charge in these efforts was New York Governor George Pataki. During his tenure as governor during the mid-90s to mid-2000s, Governor Pataki oversaw the rollout of cheap, mass-produced, lightweight, slipper-like prison-issue shoes. Costing under $3 a pair to produce, these prison shoes were lace-free and either orange or black in color. Every prisoner was given a pair of these shoes in the New York State prison system, and inmates started referring to them as Air Patakis, an obvious riff off Nike Air branding. It has been reported by former inmates that Air Patakis had no arch support, were very slippery, and generally caused calluses and blisters. Following Governor Pataki's lead, most prisons, even today, issue the same prison shoes to every inmate, often orange or black or white, generic-branded, nondescript, slip-on, prison-issue sneakers. Often, prison sneakers will be Velcro and have clear soles, so as to prevent shoelaces from being used as weapons, and to prevent inmates from smuggling drugs or weapons in the soles of their shoes. And of course, these shoes have no branding to speak of to prevent the shoes from being used for gang affiliation purposes. Despite these efforts to neutralize gang influence and identity within the prison walls, 
it isn't uncommon for prisoners to carefully draw Nike, Jordan, Fila, and other identifying logos on their shoes. Even the prisoners sporting the Air Patakis in the late 90s were carefully painting their favorite shoe logos on their orange and black slippers. So, at the end of the day, it's clear, even in prison, where and with whom one's loyalties lie just by a quick glance at the shoes they are wearing. And now to our final thoughts. Are shoes just a reflection of the cultures, groups, gangs, or societies that wear them? Or do they carry more significance? Do shoes merely reflect a culture, or do they also drive it? No need to get too rhetorical here. Simple answer. There isn't a simple answer, but it's pretty safe to say that both can be true. Al Capone and his fellow mobsters might have preferred wearing the flashy two-toned spectator shoes because they reflected how they felt about themselves. Bold, loud, commanding, unconventional, breaking free from societal norms. The shoes were an extension of the person. And yet, over time, these shoes have taken on a life and a persona of their own. Nowadays, throw on a dark pinstripe suit and step into a pair of black and white spectators, and short of carrying a Tommy gun and a bag of stolen cash, you feel like a gangster. You become the gangster, at least in the way you look and feel. It might be argued that, in the moment, you become an extension of the shoes rather than the other way around. To varying extents, the same thing can be said about Nike Cortez's British Knights prison shoes and other footwear carrying a history and surrounded by a particular culture. And this same idea can really be explored with any type of footwear. Let's go with the ever-iconic Louboutin high heels with their bright red soles. These shoes drip with luxury, sophistication, and elegance. Why do people wear such a shoe? Do the shoes merely reflect the personality, tastes, and lifestyle of the person wearing them? Or does the person reflect, or hope to reflect, the image and reputation of the shoes that they are wearing? Food for thought. Obviously, things aren't always so clear-cut one way or the other. But the beauty is that they don't have to be. The human experience is complicated and ultimately, everyone will relate to and tread through the society we live in, in our own unique way. And this extends all the way down to even the shoes we wear. Walk a mile in my shoes, see what I see, hear what I hear, feel what I feel. Then maybe you'll understand why I do what I do. Till then... Don't judge me. Only God can judge me. That right? Only God, man. Nobody Thank you all for tuning in to this episode of the Immortal Souls podcast. For more information, show notes, pictures, or just to say hi, check us out at immortalsoulspodcast.com, Instagram, or Twitter. Original theme music by Scott Spriggs. Five-star reviews are always helpful and hugely appreciated. Until next time, keep walking the roads less traveled. I 
I don't want to be a product of my environment. I want my environment to be a product of me. <laughs>